welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I'm Sam Nevis. David. In the last podcast, we talked about the reorganization of the church in 1901. Through the 1890s, they realized that they had multiple legal entities that instead of collaborating, ended up competing and duplicating their work. Yes. So the church went through this reorganization process, this restructuring in 1901. And finally, in 1903, the mission board was incorporated into the General Conference, uh, and we, we landed there. Right. Let's talk about what this reorganization was, and today we wanted to focus on China and the impact of this reorganization in China. Right, so now we're going back to looking, having spent three episodes looking at organization and structure, which we, again, as we said in one episode, may sound boring, but actually was really important, and we hope our listeners and viewers have sort of got that sense. So now we're going to go back to the actual mission work, and today we're going to focus, as you say, on China. Um, And let's go start right after the 1901 General Conference session. Um, In 1902, as we saw way back in episode 10, the church sent its first ordained minister to China, but the church quickly sent other missionaries too, not least medical missionaries. And this is one of the themes that has emerged over the uh, 26 episodes we've done so far, that the church would send a group, a a collection of people with different talents. Usually we sent um, a mixture of literature evangelists and teachers or educators to some degree, and medical missionaries and pastors. That's really the the, the dream team that, that we sent to different parts of the world. Right, and the medical missionaries would be a mix of doctors and nurses because they understand that there's a need for practical medicine that can be done at the very basic level uh, and that in in many parts of the world just a clinic is needed, not a hospital. And so a a nurse can do that as effectively as a doctor and there are more nurses than there are doctors. So they go to China. China is pretty big. Whereabouts in China? North, east, west, just to get a sense of it. So in 1903... Two pairs of missionary doctors arrived in Hong Kong to serve in China. They were two married couples, Dr. Arthur Selman and Dr. Bertha Selman, married couple, and Dr. Harry Miller and Dr. Maud Miller, again, married couples. They don't stay in Hong Kong. They go, uh, the, the, the Millers and the Selmans both get sent out to work in the north and the west of the country. And the Selmans were to serve in China for 21 years. A colleague wrote of them after they returned to the United States from China. They rendered excellent service in that field, and the Lord blessed their labors to the relief of much physical suffering and to the salvation of souls. And that's an important point to to note. And actually, Arthur Selman was an ordained minister as well as a physician. And that point for the salvation of souls is important. We need to remember that Adventist missionaries, even doctors and nurses, didn't only go out to tend to the physical ailments, they also went out to tend to the spiritual needs of those who they worked among. And when you say a lot of physical suffering, was it their suffering or the suffering of the people that they (laughs) alleviated? Let's be clear. Well, it's both, unfortunately. They, they of course, go out to help people. Um, Western medicine 
hasn't by 1901 reached or 1902 reached the stage that it will uh, even 30 years later. Um, but Western medicine is already more advanced than traditional medicine in most parts of the world. Um, and so because there's concepts of hygiene, not least, uh, that alone is an, you know, we tend to forget that because we take washing our hands for granted. But actually, the idea of hygiene only came in in the late 19th century in Europe. And yet it makes a, a huge impact for physical health and well-being. And that concept of hygiene just isn't there in most of the rest of the world. So Adventist doctors and nurses are bringing something valuable, even though they don't yet have, say, penicillin or a antibiotics, and they still haven't yet worked out all the nature of all the diseases that they face, which is a point we'll come back to. Uh, they are still bringing a benefit to the local people who they're working among because Western medicine is giving them something that their traditional medicine wouldn't give them. Unfortunately, and you allude to this, um, the missionaries themselves get exposed to these local diseases, and so it's their physical suffering, not only the suffering of the local people. Give us a sense, David, of, of how this would work out. So the missionaries arrive in a given town in China. First, they need lodging. So they find themselves lodging. Yes. And I presume the next day they go and start advertising their services. They don't speak the language. You know, let's go through that. They did. The... When they arrived in Hong Kong, they did courses in, Chi in the Chinese language. Okay. So they do understand the language. Unlike Abram LaRue, who we touched on way back many episodes ago, who was in China for 13 years and never learned Chinese, the, the original missionary to China, but though he was based in Hong Kong. But he was where, much older when he arrived. He was right? much older. He was already, yeah, it's exactly. So these are younger people, so they can, they can learn languages more easily. And that's now part of the, the plan, is that they arrive and they learn the language. So they arrive, they get, the, uh, the mission leaders have chosen a place to send them which increasingly is done on a strategic basis, that people, with, with what we would call strategic thinking. That people look at it and say, this is a good location because it gives access to all these other places. It might be a large city, say, or, or it gives access to places, as I said. So um, there's some strategic thinking goes into choosing their locations. They get sent there, they get sent with a sum of money, and their job is to find lodging, as you say, and then to start reaching out to the local people. We don't necessarily know exactly what happened on a day-by-day -day, uh, basis, uh, but from what we do know, their first job is to make contact with local people and assure them that they mean them no harm. Because there's a lot of suspicion of Westerners. Foreign devils is the way a lot of Chinese thought of them at the time. So just to disarm suspicion is important. And so one of the things that, local mis that missionaries will do is to ad adapt local dress. Uh, to start wearing local clothes um, to try and communicate that, yes, we, we want to be part of, a, of this local community. We think well of you and we want to help you. I don't suppose they had any licensing for practicing medicine back then, so no. they, they would just help. Exactly, know, if, exactly. If they were sick, they would help. Though, and in, in China especially that's true, but in certain parts of the world, where there were European colonial powers, they would actually, by the 1920s, they might only give permission to a missionary to move in if they actually had some kind of medical license. Because they were more interested in the benefit to the people than in, in terms of, 
of medicine and maybe education than they would in conversion, if you will. Right, because we're talking about the European colonial authorities, so they're not necessarily concerned about religious conversion. Uh, and so it actually becomes important that Adventists' doctors are graduates of what used to be called the College of Medical Evangelists, what today is Loma Linda University. And why did that matter? Because they were, had a fully qualified degree that was recognized by the highest American authorities. And so we know, it's not just speculation, we know that in certain cases, doctors were allowed to enter mission territories because they had those credentials. And that otherwise, say, the British authorities wouldn't have given them permission. We know that, for example, for what used to be called Botswana land, today is Botswana. The first Adventist missionaries who are allowed to go there are doctors. They don't allow pastors to go, they allow doctors to go because they are fully credentialed. And that happens to this day in many parts of the world, it's the same process. It does, it does. Though what happens, and we're talking about later in the century now, but increasingly is that American doctors need to get British credentials. Mm. And so you find American doctors going to the mission field, say for example Penang Adventist Hospital in Malaya, what today is Malaysia, is an actual example or indeed Hong Kong Adventist Hospital after it gets founded. And the doctor then spends his first furlough, instead of going home, going to Britain and taking exams so that he can become a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians or fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, which then gives him the right to work in a British territory. Fa but, fascinating stuff. But for, for China, the central government has very little authority by this stage and there is no licensing they need to go through. And so Arthur and Bertha Selman, let's we'll talk about them briefly and then we'll come back to them at the end. Okay. Arthur and Bertha, as I said, stayed in China for 21 years. So they took their permanent return to the United States in 1924. Arthur died in 1931 as a result of heart disease but he was only 54, so that's relatively young, and indeed you and I would think that it's very young indeed. There's <laughs> um, all life ahead of him. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and he probably would have lived longer, except that he'd con contracted rheumatic fever in China, which weakened his heart. So even though he didn't die in China, there is a, a price to be paid for the 21 years that he and Bertha spend in China. So he went in his early 30s then? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. He was 33. Okay. We'll come back to him at the end, but let's now talk about Harry and Maud Miller. Now, Harry Miller is a well-known name in Adventist history for his work in China. Indeed, there was a very popular Adventist book published, um, a biography of him published about 50 years ago called China Doctor. So, very descriptive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it lets you know it, it, exactly what it's going to be about. Yes, as we say in our British homeland, it does what it says on the tin. Um, you know what it's about. Harry Miller became famous working in China in the 20s and 30s, and he, he did become famous. He was known in America, and he liaised at the very top of Chinese society. But he first goes to China back then in 1902, and he doesn't go alone. So let's go back to 1902, to a woman called Maud Amelia Thompson. She and Harry W. Miller were both classmates at the American Medical Missionary College in Battle Creek. Oh. Mm -hmm. This is the predecessor of, of Loma Linda. As we've talked about, Battle Creek became toxic because of the influence of John Harvey Kellogg. And, so the, and the church loses control of the American Medical Missionary College, and that's one reason 
The College of Medical Evangelists gets founded in Loma Linda so that the Adventist Church has control of a medical school. We need to have another episode to find out how that happened. But That's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. We'll come back to it. Yeah. But so they're both graduates of the American Medical Missionary College in Battle Creek in 1902. But Maud was a prodigy. She was only 22 years old when she graduated. And the two doctors, we don't know, but we can probably they were attracted to each other. But they may also have been keen to go as missionaries. And the chance of being accepted for foreign mission service was greater if an applicant was married. So they got married? <laughs> they may well have got married so they could go as missionaries. Interesting. We, we, it, it did, we know that it happened. Um, but also it's very common for people um, to get married right before they go to the mission field. And so that is sort of makes you think, why are they getting married? Is it because they have fallen in love or because they want to be missionaries? Um, whatever the case, they were married on July 2 in 1902. And in the video version, we'll show photographs of them taken at their wedding. Okay. Immediately after their marriage, both of them worked at the church's Chicago sanitarium, today's Hinsdale Hospital. But in both cases, their minds were, so a friend wrote, impressed with the need of the millions in China, and they volunteered to go and carry the gospel there. How did they get a sense of what was happening in China? Was that the review? Yes. So it's the Review and Herald, what we call the Adventist Review today. That's the chief paper. But, you know, missionaries would also write reports in their union church papers. And so this was an era of mass literacy when everybody subscribed to newspapers and people subscribed to the church newspapers and read them. And so you might read it in, you probably would read about China in the review. Um, Jacob Anderson, who's the first Adventist ordained missionary, Adventist minister to go as a missionary to China and his wife, we talked about them some episodes ago. He will be writing in the review about what's going on. But missionaries may also write in their union paper. And the union paper may, for example, print a letter that they've written to a friend or family member. We've always had the <clears> need to share with the rest of our world family what's happening in different parts of the world. And the review has served a tremendous yes. uh, uh, role in that. Missionary work wasn't enough to be self-sustaining. The fact that people were there wasn't, wouldn't make it self-sustaining. What was needed was communication, Sam. Yay! <laughs> the ability to communicate back to the homelands about what missionaries were doing and what the needs of the mission field were. So <clears throat> they would have become impressed by the need of the millions in China by reading the review and possibly union papers and finding out what's going on, but especially the review. So they fall in love with China and the people of China more to the point. Well, not they. at first it's a theoretical love for China because they say, okay, China has a vast need. We want to go there. Mm -hmm. And so in 1903, they were called to China. They traveled across the Pacific Ocean to Hong Kong and then into the interior. They arrived at their assigned station, Xin Tsai Xian, on November 7, 1903. And Maud preferred to wear Chinese dress. There is at least one photograph of her in Chinese clothing. Okay. And a colleague wrote, she worked energetically in mastering the language and in teaching the gospel, as well as caring for the large number of sick children and women that came every day for treatment. Harry would have treated the men. Interesting. So there is a gendered uh, view to this, but of course it also reflects the local culture. 
people would have expected women and children to be treated by the female doctor, not by the man. So, and she's in her early 20s. She's 23. Learning the language and giving herself to that kind of, of, of right. purpose. That's she, beautiful. She had a real love for China and the Chinese people. But in the winter of 1904-05, she contacted Sprue. Is that a disease of which you've ever heard, Sam? No, no it it. But by the, when you started giving me the date, I knew that it wasn't going to end well for her because <laughs> I've been in these podcasts enough that it starts well and then... Well, unfortunately, that's often the case. I had never heard of Sprue until I started researching Adventist missionaries in Asia, especially. It's a disease that's still not well understood. And it killed many Europeans in early 20th century Asia. And actually, Maud's husband, Harry, later had to be invalided home when suffering from the disease, and he almost died. Though he eventually recovered, and he was able to return to China after World War I. But she survived it, right? She did not. And the symptoms are horrible. We're not going to share them here because it would be too much information. The symptoms are horrible. Um, and yet, as colleagues marvel, this is what one of them wrote, during Maud's illness, her hope and courage found many expressions which we cherish to our comfort. Although we do not understand the reason they contribute, they continued, we know God's ways are above our ways. And then they go on, May the seed of a consecrated life laid down in the line of duty and self-sacrifice be watered of God to bring forth a glorious harvest of souls from China ere the soon coming of our King. This is very hard to comprehend, David, because you imagine this girl growing up as a teenager, dedicating herself to her studies, developing a love for Jesus and a love for mission. And she goes to medical school. She studies, I presume, very hard because graduating at 22 is, is a prodigy, as you said. And then getting married, going to the mission field, and doing that work day in and day out. I imagine the joy and the struggle. She's trying to learn the language. She's dressing like the Chinese. She's, she's being this very incarnational, following her, yes. her rabbi, following Jesus. And then she contracts this disease that is still not understood well today, let alone back then. And she dies from it, and God does not heal her. Yeah. That, and their response is, God knows best. God's ways are above our ways. We need more people like this that are willing to right. give out their lives. And we've seen this in previous episodes. When somebody dies unexpectedly or young or very or somebody dies at all, the response is always there's, there's that sense of bewilderment exactly as, as you have. Why didn't God heal her? But, you know, we don't know. But then there's always the pivot to say we need more people to come now to replace her. We need someone to take up the work that has been laid down. Not least because people following that up would mean that her work was not in vain and it e wasn't wasted. Exactly, that it wasn't wasted. And, that, and sometimes they will say that explicitly. Who will take up this work and make sure the sacrifice was not in vain? And 120 years later, we're now recording a podcast on a medium that she would never imagine existed to talk about yeah. her story in a way that will inspire people today to do the same. And we have half a million believers in China, which probably would have seemed extraordinary to her as well. And that's despite those 40 years of persecution under the, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. This, this shows that if, if you're going to take missions seriously, it isn't understanding that God requires of us. It's faith. It's trust mm. that he is in control. 
which is impossible for humans to, to do that. So the surrender that is necessary and the, only the Holy Spirit can produce that genuine peace with outcomes such as this, knowing that this isn't the end and one day God will put all of this to rights as, right. as a British expression, but he will, he will fix it. Yes. He's going to heal this world altogether. Yes. Hmm. Now, well, and let's, let's look at another story like that. But first, Maud's funeral was actually conducted by Dr. Arthur Selman, who, as I mentioned, was, a, was an ordained pastor as well. So he conducts the funeral. Early in 1915, Elsie Morgan and Clarence Davis got married. They were both graduates of Australasian Missionary College, today's Avondale University. Um, they had had a call to go as missionaries to China, and they got, again, they get married, and it's, uh, um, we assume they love each other, but it's also by being married, they make it easier for themselves to be called as missionaries. So we talked about two missionary couples that came from the U.S. Yes. And now we're talking about a missionary couple that is coming from Australia. Correct, yes. Uh, they were among the first Australian Adventist missionaries to China. They weren't the first. There was another called Francis Allam and his wife, uh, but the Davises are among the first to go to China. They sailed from Sydney on August 31, 1915, and landed at Nanjing on September 30, so it took them a month to get there. As one of their colleagues wrote, Clarence little thought that they would be permitted to live together but six weeks in the mission field, for both were buoyant in faith. Yet Elsie died in Nanjing on November 12, 1915, after a brief illness of but 10 hours. So whatever she had was virulent. The year would not end until he was a, a widow. Yes. Because widower. of the mission. A widower. Yes. Because of the mission. Yes. The same colleague notes of, wrote um, about her sorrowing husband who feels the hand of affliction heavy upon him. But she says that Elsie died at peace. In her, in her obituary, her dying words are reported as, Jesus knows all about it and it is all right. That's extraordinary faith. Indeed it is. And it, it's, it's humbling, actually, as well as sobering, that somebody could, could, could say that in those circumstances. She was only 22 years of, old, of age, and she died before she'd seen barely anything of the world, much less her chosen mission field. Um, and yet, as so often, her passing gets used as an occasion to urge greater missionary effort. She was the first graduate of Australasian Missionary College to die in a foreign mission field. And her obituary comments, surely it will be a day of affliction to our people in Australia, for of the workers furnished to this field, Sister Davis is the first to fall at her post. But may not her death be a call to the young men and women of the Australasian Union to consecrate their lives for service in the needy Orient? You know, David, I think one of the the most meaningful parts of this podcast that we are recording is for these stories to be known. Yes, I agree. Because I, I've studied Adventist history for, I don't know, 20 years now, and I had not heard most of the stories that I heard in these conversations, I had not heard before. Mm. And it is, it is almost depressing to go through story after story of people that dedicated themselves completely and paid the ultimate price, often through disease, 
um, that it, it, it propels us today where medicine has advanced and there's less likelihood of death to the mission field, that we should be living today perhaps with the highest numbers of with people that are willing to go into the mission field. Mm. And that's exactly what is happening. We interviewed Sylvia here some time ago from Vivid right. Faith. Right. And she testified that we have many more people, thousands of people, that Will have you, signed up to right. go. Who are ready to go. But we don't have enough positions for them to go to. Right. So we have a problem of, of uh, oversubscription to mission. Yes. And we pray that these stories, as they are heard, will continue increasing the number of people that are willing to go, but also that this podcast will serve as, a, as an inspiration to Adventist entities around the world to call missionaries to come. Exactly. And create those positions. Absolutely, Sam. That, that would be um, a wonderful thing to happen to coming out of this podcast. That's what I, one of the things I would like to see happen, is that more Adventist organizational entities say, there's this large pool of people who are willing to serve. We don't have to rely on our own efforts alone, on our own resources alone. Let's bring in people who have a passion for mission and who can be trained and appropriately, just as Maud and Harry Miller were. Uh, but let's bring them in and let's make the most of these thousands of people, many of them young people, who are willing and enthusiastic to serve. Do we know what happened to the husband? He stayed in the mission field. And often that's the case. In fact, you may remember we talked some time ago about missionaries to Central America, um, one of whom the husband's wife died and another the wife's husband died. And they later met, they went back, they'd both gone back to the States, but they married each other and returned to the mission field where their spouses had died. Wow. That's so, going to be some resurrection morning, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about another missionary going forward a little bit to 1930. On August 14, 1930, Dr. Elmer F. Coulston married Letha Wenke. Now, Coulston was a graduate of the College of Medical Evangelists, Loma Linda. As a doctor, Letha was a graduate as well, but as a nurse. And they'd met while they were studying there. They were another missionary couple for whom their voyage to the mission field was their honeymoon. Because barely two weeks after their wedding, they sailed for China from San Francisco. Nearly four weeks later, on September 25, Elmer and Letha arrived in Shanghai and then traveled 900 miles north, so nearly 1,000 miles, um, to take up an appointment at the North China Sanitarium in the city of Kalgan, today known as Zhang Jiaku, in Hubei province in the north of the country. So clearly the work had fruit because within 15 years of the last story we talked about, we now have a sanitarium. Oh, for them to go to. Absolutely. And in fact, by the 1930s, there are several sanitariums. One in Shanghai that's particularly famous because it was uh, uh, patronized by leading Chinese government officials and by the Western elite in Shanghai. Um, but there are other sh sanitariums in various parts of China. And in mm -hmm. fact, Arthur Selman had worked in Hubei province. So the North China Sanitarium is probably, in some respects, the fruit of Selman's work in Hubei province. Okay. In Zhang Jiakao, Elmer threw himself unreservedly into the medical mi missionary work, um, which he had been interested in and which, as he writes, he was anxious to begin. Almost 14 months later, 
Elmer and Letha had a son born in the city, Chris. But sadly, little Chris was not only born there, he was buried there too. He died aged 10 months on October 4, 1932. Less than two years later, Elmer contracted a virulent type of diphtheria. Although taken for treatment 120 miles south to Beijing, he died on May 26, 1934, after suffering for a week. His body was taken back to Zhang Jiaokao and buried in the same grave as his son. He had served as a missionary for three years and eight months, and he was only 28 years old. And we have a photograph that we'll share on the video version that shows uh, Letha at Elmer's funeral being comforted by other missionary wives. And Dr. Harry Miller, the same Harry Miller who is by this time was leader of the medical missionary work in China, noted that an underlying cause of Elmer's death was overwork. Miller di diplomatically observed his one fault was working beyond his strength. Which is a theme with our pioneers too. Absolutely, but it also points to the 100% commitment to the mission that he and Letha had. So at 28, he overworked, lowered his immune system to the point of contracting this illness. Yes. She's a nurse. What happened to her? I don't know, actually. I, I would, I've lost track of, of her in the story, so uh, that's something we'll, we'll she have might to pursue. Have, she might have come back or have stayed. We don't know. She may have gone home, which would have been understandable, but we know many missionaries who in China, specific, I'm thinking of specific examples, who women whose husband died and were offered the chance to go home and say, no, I'm staying here. Some of them with children, but saying, no, I'm staying at my post. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is to ask, why are people willing to go as missionaries even when the odds of serious illness or even death was so great. And they hear about it. It's not like it's a secret. It's published everywhere. Completely. That's exactly right. But we know why they are willing to go, because missionaries wrote about their experiences, both in letters to family and friends back in their homeland and in the church's papers. And the answer is that they wanted to share Jesus with people who knew nothing about him. Perhaps there's a little bit of an element of I want to travel, see the world, do exciting things. But really, it comes back to Jesus. And it's, that's interesting because at times there are those who say that Adventism doesn't have enough of righteousness by faith about it and we're too legalist. But when you read what early missionaries write, they don't say, I want to go to share the Ten Commandments. They don't even say, I want to go and share the sanctuary truth or the state of the dead. They say they want to share about Jesus. And so, actually, my sense is that there's been a very strong commitment to righteousness by faith in Adventism for a very long time, because missionaries want to share Jesus. Let me give you an example from Arthur Selman, who we talked about at the start, and I said we'd come back to him. In 1906, he published an article in the main church paper, the Review and Herald, that we talked about, Selman wrote from his mission station in Xiangcheng in China's Hubei province to encourage missionary service and to encourage praying for mission and giving to mission. And in this article, he writes to Adventist church members back in their homeland, and he says, There is a great work yet to be done, for this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. Here we have three-fourths of China's 426 million 
and only nine workers to preach the message. We long to see reinforcements coming out to help us. You know this blessed truth. What other call do you want to lead you out into the regions beyond? And I just want to pause there because it's interesting to note that there he uses an expression favored by Ellen White when she was calling for mission to the great unreached areas of the world. She uses the phrase, the regions beyond. So that shows how her ideas were spreading and how they were shaping missionary activity. But it also shows the urgency felt by missionaries to East Asia and Southern Asia in particular, the urgency of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, not just to other Christians, but to adherents of Islam, Hinduism, Confucianism, and Buddhism. Did we develop any any way of communicating the gospel, especially the Adventist message as we understood it, to uh, those different religions at the time? Because today we study that quite deeply. Yes. But did we have that conversation back then? By 1906, not so much. Um, and indeed, often when Adventist missionaries go to uh, a new part of the world, they first reach out to local Christians. But in China, there's very few local Christians, so they don't have that option. And they must have learned how to adapt their message because they do get converts. And so they wouldn't have had any success if they weren't able to adapt. Today, some people see a dichotomy between the ministry of healing and the ministry of proclamation. Mm. Do, do you see that tension back then? Are we no. there to heal or are we there to preach? They don't see that difference. They don't see that. We're, they see it as one thing. Because they're there to talk about Jesus and to embody Jesus. It's incarnational ministry. And Jesus preached and taught and healed. So Adventists preach and teach and heal. And by the 1920s, they're beginning to actually say, okay, maybe you know we need to think about what we're trying to do. And so... By the late 1920s, they are, for example, devoting a lot of time to saying, what methods can we use to reach Muslims? Mm. What do we have to do? How do we have to say it in order to break down those immense barriers uh, that exist in Islamic countries and among Muslims? So they do start to pay attention. and They're not just, as some of our listeners may imagine, they're not just blindly going in and doing things exactly the way they did back in America and then being surprised that it doesn't work. Uh, but is, is but they must, but I, th I think anyone who's learned another language, as both you and I have done, you learn something about the culture when you learn the language. Sure. And I'm sure that learning Chinese helped them to learn to adapt to the local culture. But also, of course, this is one reason why they use the healing ministry so in such a major way in China, because people who've been healed are going to be more open to hearing the gospel from the people who've healed them or their family members. Of course. I, I get a sense that now that we have missionaries who spent considerable amount of time in the field and now they come back to America, they are bringing a different sense of, of how the church should be led based on the reality of the mission field not the theory of it. Yes. You know, in a, a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned A.J. Daniel spent 10 years somewhere and then he came back to lead the church yes. you know, from yeah. here. The more that happens, the more the need to adapt to methods and, and strategies, I presume, because you have missionaries that have struggled through it for many years. That's right. And now they want the new missionaries that go to start from where they ended in, in those thought processes, not from the ignorance of when they arrived. That's correct. The church doesn't actually start 
um, in one sense, it doesn't start dedicated missionary training until the 1960s when it creates the Institute of World Mission. And we need to bring the director of the Institute of World Mission on to a future episode. That's a great idea. Uh, so that he can talk about the training that goes through. But actually, in another sense, they'd started the training for missionaries all the way back in 1905. Because the college that today is Washington Adventist University was originally the Washington Foreign Mission Seminary, and it was operated by the General Conference to train future missionaries. So there's an awareness all the way back to 118 years ago. Um, that training was needed. That's, and that specific training was needed yes. in order to operate in a different culture and a different society. Remind me of when Battle Creek... Uh, when we left Battle Creek, the General Conference left Battle Creek and came to... 1903. To, uh, 1903. So within two years, we established this college here Yes. that would prepare missionaries. That's a very short yeah. time frame. Hence, yes. they saw the need of it. Right. And unfortunately, it doesn't continue as a foreign mission seminary. Presumably, we, we don't quite know why. It may be because they didn't have enough students to make it financially viable. And so they make it a, a standard liberal arts college instead for, for any Adventist young people. And a lot of our missionaries were medical missionaries, and they were being trained on the other side they of the They were being trained at Loma Linda. That's right. That's right. But again, even the medical missionaries have that commitment to Christ. And let's, uh, let's go back to Arthur Selman, mm. because that article in the review, he concludes with an interesting suggestion, in fact, with two interesting arguments. The first is about what our commitment to cross-cultural mission says about our faith in general. Our commitment to mission to those who are not Christians and thus are the farthest away from understanding about Christ. So it says, what does that sort of mission say about our faith in general? And his second argument is that concentrating on reaching those who have never heard of Christ may actually help us deal with challenges arising from materialism and secularism. And, I think, and I think that's worth considering still yeah. today in the 21st century. So this is what he writes. The missionary activity of Seventh-day Adventists is the best index of their faith in the soon coming of the Lord Jesus. Those who feel and know that he is coming soon will be using every energy to proclaim the gospel message to those who are yet in darkness. If all the young men and women in our training schools had this conviction, they would be in no danger of becoming engrossed in any of the false sciences and speculative philosophies that sidetrack some of our young people. So this is an indictment, David. It's, it's pretty strong because if I understood correctly, he, he has two major points there. The first is, oh, so you believe Jesus is coming, do you? Then put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Do something about it. Yeah. Don't just have a sense of, we're waiting for Jesus to come. No, right. if you really think he's coming, then, then be involved in mission and especially the regions beyond, especially those areas that are not Christians, those that don't know Jesus yet. Let's prioritize those. Right. And he actually, he, he comes out with a pretty stinging remark at the end. He says, my brother or sister, as you are surrounded by all the comforts of home life, will you not think of China's millions that are perishing for a knowledge of the truth that makes your heart glad? He's, he's not mincing he's words. Not. <laughs> he's going straight to it. Yeah. The second point that he makes is that our schools, our universities should be preparing missionaries. Yes. Now this hasn't, I mean, to some degree it has been the case, but in the schools of communication that I'm more familiar with, we've lost that sense of mission Yes. Um, in many of our universities. 
We're going to teach you to be a great communicator so that you can work in the industry, so that you can, you know, if you're studying video, you can go to Hollywood if you're studying. But that sense of, and I don't know the other schools, maybe it's different in the others, but the sense of no matter what you're studying, yeah. we're going to prepare you to be involved in mission within the church. Do you think there has been a, a level of professionalism of our academic institutions to the point that they've become more secular than they should be, according to his view? I think so. I think so. And what he says, of course, is if young people are committing to mission, it's going to inoculate them against materialism and secularism. Of course it is. And, and I believe that's true. And, and you do too. So I think, um, of course, we want to train church members who will be light and salt because that's Christ's command Certainly. to us. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, for an Adventist training institution, I think that the, the first priority should be training people who can go outside the church community and deliberately and purposefully engage in mission. And if God calls them to stay here and go work in a corporation here, so be it. Right. Uh, but that preparation, that love, and that constant thinking of, I'm going to apply whatever it is that I'm learning um, to help more people be saved, I think that's something that we cannot lose in our Adventist institutions. How to revive that? Then maybe we need to revisit that in another episode. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, good time. Let's, let's leave it here, David. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. If you want to find mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.